Good evening. It's February 21st, and you're listening to Eye on the Triangle. I'm Nick Savage. I'm Jake Langlois, and we thank you for tuning in. Today is Mardi Gras, the last day before the holy season of Lent, and perhaps more famously, the biggest party in New Orleans of the year. This week, we bring you some in-depth reporting about the big bad deficit that everyone is always so concerned about, as well as some insight on the Student Secular Alliance and the role they play on our diverse campus. In addition, we delve a little bit into the NTSU meme phenomenon you have no no doubt sorry, been plastered all over your Facebook wall in recent weeks. DeAndre Jones and Mark Herring are back with some thoughts on the things that matter to them. And as always, Rebecca returns with Eye on the Arts, and Dave is back with Community Calendar and the Holidays of the Week. But first, we return to Katie Costa for the weather. How's it looking, Katie? Well, Nick, as you know, we just had a blast of winter weather move through on Sunday, and now we are going to be seeing a complete 180 over the next couple of days. Believe it or not, warmer temperatures are on the way. Today, we were warmer than yesterday with highs in the upper 50s, and we will stay above freezing tonight with temperatures dropping into the lower 40s with mostly cloudy skies. Tomorrow, we will see mostly sunny skies, and it will be warmer with highs in the mid to upper 60s. A beautiful day to spend some time outdoors. Now, we do have a slight chance of showers tomorrow evening with temperatures dropping into the upper 40s so if you're planning on heading out tomorrow evening be sure to carry an umbrella thursday looks like the best day out of this whole week since temperatures will peak into the 70s with mostly sunny skies wow what a huge change from sunday's weather thursday evening will stay fairly warm with lows raining in the upper 50s a strong cold front will start to change things around again and will begin to make its way into the triangle overnight thursday and into friday morning bringing rain and colder temperatures to the region once again we will see a high of 70 degrees throughout the day on friday but temperatures will start to drop dramatically as the front passes through and cools us down to a chilly 39 degrees friday evening Rain will clear out by Friday night, making way for a beautiful sunny weekend, but we will be cooler this weekend with highs in the mid-50s and lows in the lower 30s. Well, Nick, I don't know about you, but I am so frustrated that the weather just can't seem to make up its mind. One minute you need the winter jacket and scarf, and the next minute you need to pull out the t-shirt and shorts. I just can't wait until the weather stays consistent for at least a whole week at a time. Yeah, it'll be nice once spring makes its way in for good. Definitely. Looking forward to that. (laughs) Thanks, Katie. Next, let's turn to Jake for the latest in news. Thanks, Nick. Jury selection began today in what many are calling the most significant sex abuse scandal in the United States to date. Four priests and a teacher were charged with taking abusive sexual liberties with underage boys from 1996 to 2000. The case is significant because it marks the first time that higher church officials have been charged with conspiracy by not taking more action to put a stop to the abuse. Of the five men arrested and charged, only four actively sexually abused a child. The fifth, Monsignor William Lynn, was charged with two counts of endangering the welfare of a child. As Mardi Gras gets underway today, close to 200 minors have already been arrested for being out past the 8 p.m. curfew in the New Orleans French Quarter District. The statute was passed by the New Orleans City Council in January and states that no minor under the age of 16 may be out in the French Quarter unsupervised after 8 p.m. This new curfew only applies in the French Quarter District of the city, which is known to become much less family-friendly at night. Out of 816 arrests made this Mardi Gras, 170 were underage minors out past curfew. Next to Washington, where the Supreme Court today decided to hear a major case that could determine whether college affirmative action programs are constitutional or not. The decision has the potential to overturn the 2003 ruling of Grutter versus Bollinger, which stated that colleges and universities could consider race in the application process. This latest case, Fisher versus Texas, was brought on by a white student who claimed she was denied entrance to the University of Texas because of her race in 2008. 
Should the Supreme Court side with Fisher, this could effectively overturn the 2003 decision, making it illegal to use race as a deciding factor when terminating eligibility into a university. Meanwhile, the race for the GOP nomination continues. Newt Gingrich seems to have fallen by the wayside as Rick Santorum takes his turn in the limelight. His campaign has been helped in recent days by the controversy surrounding the contraceptive mandate in the new health care law. Rick Santorum has ridden a surge of social conservative sentiment to essentially become tied with Romney in the polls. This has left the Romney campaign scrambling to maintain their lead as the February 28th Michigan primaries approach. The next GOP debate is scheduled for tomorrow night at 8 p.m. in Arizona. And for an international perspective, we turn to DeAndre Jones. Thanks, Jenk. Eurozone finance ministers sealed a deal Tuesday morning for a second bailout for, G- for Greece, including 130 billion euros, or $173 billion, in new financing. The finance ministers for the, from the 17 nations that use the euro, known as the Eurogroup, gave Greece the funding it needs to avoid a potential default next month. While this new deal provides some short-term relief for Greece, difficult days lie ahead as the government tries to trim debt to 121% of the country's gross domestic product by 2020. Greece's debt now stands at about 100, 160% of the GDP. Next, Pakistani authorities vowed Tuesday to use the international police agency Interpol to arrest former Pakistani president Pervez Musharraf in connection with the assassination of former Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. The government is moving for his red notice, Interior Minister Rahman Malik said, referring to the Interpol's international arrest warrant. We will get him through Interpol to Pakistan. Malik made the announcement as part of a progress report of the four-year-long assassination probe that was presented to provincial lawmakers Tuesday in Bhutto's home province of Sindh. The briefing lasted several hours and was broadcasted live on Pakistani TV. Bhutto was assassinated in a gun suicide attack in December 2007, shortly after she came back to Pakistan from self-imposed exile to take part in the 2008 general elections. Finally, prosecutors in the the trial of Egypt's Hassan Hosni Mubarak offered their closing remarks on Monday, demanding the former president be held responsible for the deaths of protesters during the clashes that led to his ouster last year. The ailing Mubarak is on trial on charges of corruption and ordering the deaths of hundreds of protesters. He has denied the charges. Even if the defense statement was true that the former president was not aware of such acts, he remains responsible by virtue of the Constitution and the law. For all of these acts were committed while he was acting as a president, said Prosecutor Mustafa Soleiman, according to Egypt News, Egypt's, Egypt's official news agency. Thanks. Back to you, Nick. Thanks, DeAndre. It seems that lately, nothing in government can get done without a discussion about the deficit. But what does all the rhetoric actually mean? Here's Will Allen with a report. Good evening. My guest tonight is Ryan Avon. Dr. Avent was graduated in 2000 from NC State, where he completed a bachelor's degree in economics and served in the Student Senate. He went on to the London School of Economics, from which he took a doctorate in economic history. In September of last year, he published The Gated City, an analysis of urban stagnation, which is currently available through Amazon as an electronic book. A reviewer characterized it as a sensible, persuasive piece, the kind of compassionate libertarianism you might expect to read on a particularly good blog. This characterization would presumably please Dr. Avent's employers at The Economist, where he currently edits the Free Exchange blog and serves as economics correspondent for the magazine. The word economics and its derivatives were heard no less than five times in the preceding introduction, so it should come as no surprise that tonight's topic is the state of the American economy. I should like to begin by asking Dr. Avent whether he believes that a full recovery from the so-called Great Recession is imminent, and if not, what ought we to do about it? I certainly hope so. It's been a long time coming, I think. It was 2009, 2009 is when the, the Great Recession came to an official end. So we're, we're going on uh, almost three years of recovery at this point. So uh, normally the general rule of thumb is that the deeper the downturn, the, f- the faster the recovery. Right. We expect there to be sort of a, a V-shaped pattern to these things. And 
Uh, that's obviously not what we've seen. And uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the nature of the downturn. A lot of times we end up in a recession because the Fed has stepped in to try to squash inflation. And uh, that ends up be accused of trying to squash inflation. Man. Not this time, no. And a uh, nice thing about that kind of recession is that when the Fed is satisfied, it can sort of get its foot off the brake pedals and the economy roars back. Uh, but this time, got into recession because we had a financial crisis associated with the implosion of this debt bubble. And so we had a situation where consumers were saddled with just a lot of debt. Most of the time it was mortgage debt, but so uh, just general consumer debt. And uh, that tends to lead to sluggish recoveries because people have to, aren't spending like they used to. They're, they have to uh, slowly pay back these debts. Right. The, so I think that was one issue. Another issue we've had is that we've just not been very lucky. Uh, there's been a lot of bad things that have happened during the recovery. We've had an ongoing crisis in Europe two years, which has mainly impacted the U.S. through financial markets, where it's sort of hit stock prices and made Americans feel less rich, and that sort of slows recovery. We've had continual problems with high gas prices, uh, particularly serious last year when the, the crisis in Libya led to a right. spike in oil prices and Obviously, whenever that happens, people have less money to spend, and that, that slows recovery. Last Thursday on the Free Exchange blog, you pointed to a 100% jump in the index of homebuilder confidence in September of last year and expressed the hope that new construction, quote, might well keep the American economy on track for a decent to great fourth quarter performance. Do you expect that housing could again fuel sustainable growth? I think it certainly could. I think there, there are two key facts about housing. One of them is that, for now, mortgage markets continue to be sort of broken. Uh, banks aren't really willing to lend, certainly not in the way they were lending in 2005, 2006, when anybody could get a loan, sure. but, but not even in, in sort of what we would expect to see normal uh, lending conditions. Right. That's just very hard even for qualified borrowers to get a loan. So as long as that's true, it's going to be tough for there to be a big housing-led rebound. At the same time, for the last five years, there's been record low level of housing construction. Right. Um, there's, there's just unprecedented lull in construction uh, in our history. And at the same time, we've had steady population growth. And so eventually you sort of run into a crunch there. There's excess demand and people will need more housing. And what we've seen is that this has sort of been felt initially in the rental market. Rents have been rising in a lot of places. Right. And a lot of the new construction we've seen so far has been multifamily rental housing. housing. Yeah, exactly. Apartment building, things like that. I think that as that takes place, that will eventually spill over into market for single family homes. And, it, it, you know, it's not going to be a boom like we saw in 2005. Sure. But to go from housing being a huge drag to being sort of a, a positive force ends up making a huge difference. Turning so. from private debts to national debt, much in the news, the presidential campaign obviously has intensified the debate over what the proper role of the national debt is in the economy. Uh, the White House just released a budget proposal, which in keeping with election year budget proposals is, is very much a campaign document as much as it is a budget, which keeps the nation on track to accumulate publicly held federal debt to 77.4% of our gross domestic product next year. Uh, the Wall Street Journal editors assert that around 90% of GDP uh, debt is a chronically ill effect on the economy. How, in your judgment, has the national debt interfered with our recent economic performance? Does it? Well, I think that it has the potential to be a negative economic growth over the long term. Uh, certainly, there you know there's a need to strain deficits for the next 5 to 10 years, but also beyond that, when medical costs are really going to be soaring, something has to be done about that. Uh, at the same time, I think it's... Hard to say that it's had much of a negative impact on growth in the short term. I mean, and one of the things we sort of expect to see is that when the private economy is, is imploding like it did in, in 08 and 09, that the government is, is naturally going to, to step in and do a little more only because they're providing things like unemployment insurance. Um, that's, I mean, that's a healthy role that the government is playing to sort of stabilize the economy and prevent recessions from being much deeper than they might otherwise be. All right, but without asking you to play politician okay you know the fact that the debate right now is being framed in terms of how much should we cut how much should the government cut back do you see that as 
the debate we should be having right now as far as stimulating the economy goes? Or do you think we should be we should be looking at spending more, which certainly would be the side of the president? But um, yeah, I, I think it's interesting that it's become a debate about, you know, what's the proper size of government? Because it, it doesn't actually have we don't really need to have that debate. I mean, I think it's un, unquestionably true that the U.S. needs to invest more in some areas and can do it in ways that would boost the economy. You know, if you, if you look at the, what the Congressional Budget Office says, what independent reports say, we've been underinvesting in infrastructure for, for decades. Right. And there's just hundreds of billions of, of useful spending that could be done there. Minnesota. Exactly. You think about I mean, waiting think, to be rebuilt. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a critical need in the economy. And at the same time, there's a lot of waste government spending. Um, there's probably even more waste in the tax code. And so there is room to strike a budget deal in which you're doing more to spend money on the things you, we ought to be spending money on, wasting less on, on things that we shouldn't. That doesn't seem to be the way the conversation has gone. We're not working toward that kind of deal. Either one side is saying that government is, is much too large than it ought to be, and we sort of need to indiscriminately cut it back. And I think the other side has a tendency to say that there's no need to really focus on deficit issues at all. And I, you know, I think in the short term, they're, they're probably right. There is no need to focus on deficit issues. But you, you do need to be conscious of the fact that 5, 10, 20 years down the road, there is... There is a problem looming that, that needs there, to be. There is a point which yeah. the size of the national debt becomes a problem. And if we plan sensibly now to, to begin addressing that problem in five years, uh, we find ourselves not needing to do nearly as much work 20 years down the road, you know, not having to slash uh, and, and burn our way through the budget. So. Exactly. You mentioned discriminating between what we should be spending money on and what we shouldn't. Uh, what are the major sources of our indebtedness right now, the ones that are not talked about very often? Um, well, I mean, one popular way of sort of talking about what the government actually is is it's a very large insurance company with an army attached. I mean, that when you when it boils down to it, the biggest parts of our budget are uh, we would we would call the social safety net or the welfare state, and that's Social Security, right. Medicare, Medicaid, right. defense spending, and uh, there are also I mean substantial parts, about a sixth each, that go to discretionary non-defense spending, and that's anything from you know government of agriculture to right. bridges, all of that stuff. And there's also interest on the debt. But I, you know, I think the tendency in Washington in recent years has been to find as many of the cuts as possible in non-defense, non-discretionary category because no one wants to be accused of cutting defense and no one wants to be accused of cutting funding for seniors because they're such an important constituency which votes. And a powerful constituency precisely. Exactly, exactly. So when you, you know, automatically exclude 70% of the budget from being touched, um, the cuts you have to make to the rest of it are draconian. So I, I, you know, this system isn't sustainable and that's what we're starting to realize but federal spending program whether it creates health care for the elderly or subsidies for sheep farmers or amtrak service to florida uh, brings tangible benefits to a specific constituency and imposes largely intangible costs on the population at large often hidden costs as it were now this seems to be a form potentially a form of the tragedy of commons wherein everyone is thinking about the individual benefits that they receive from a specific program uh, while no one is led to have any regard for our shared interest in, in discipline. Again, without asking you to, to jump into political analysis first, how do we combat cycle of incentives where no one has a regard for commons from which we're taking? I mean, I think the, it comes down to uh, the institutions of government and uh, the points at which essentially these decisions made. If there's, I mean, if, if we have an environment that's very conducive to log rolling, um, where uh, it's relatively costless for a person to support his own constituency, collude with other congressmen, also want to do the same thing. There's no check on that. You're, you're going to have quite a lot of this sort of thing. I, I think the good news, though, is that it does seem like the U.S. economy is in a stronger position in, 
expected even six months ago. And it's a lot easier to make these decisions in an environment of growth than it is in an environment when the economy is shrinking. Thank you very much. My guest has been Ryan Avent, economics correspondent for The Economist and a proud Wolfpack alumnus. You can follow Dr. Avent's blog at economist.com slash blog slash free exchange and download his new book, The Gated City, from Amazon.com. For 88.1 WKNC, this is William Allen. Good night. NC State is an enormous school with many different kinds of thoughts and beliefs on campus. Mark Herring recently sat down with members of the Student Secular Alliance to delve a little bit into what exactly they do or do not believe in. Um, I'm joined in the studio uh, by two students who are with Secular Students Alliance. So could you introduce yourself and tell me uh, just what your organization is all about? Hi, everyone out there. I'm Kevin Kearney. I'm the president of this group. I started up. The idea of me putting this group together was that I wanted all the different types of secular people and free-thinking people on campus to get together and talk about all the issues that regard secularism. Uh, And it takes a lot of effort to do that. Hey, this is Gordon Willingham. I'm the spokes chairman for Secular Student Alliance, and I'm just happy to be here. Okay, cool. So, um... Now, with what you were going with earlier, Kevin, uh, it seems like there are a lot of students out uh, at the university who are interested in this. Um, You were talking about promoting free thought. What are some of the events that you do to capture the student body's attention? I want to point out that when we talk about secular, um, a lot of people might present our group as like a group of just atheists, but it's just a trend with people who um, I think um, question a lot of really fundamental and deep questions, um, such as religion and pseudoscience and things like that. So it's not something we're trying to promote. We're promoting things like free thinking and inquiry in an individual level. Gordon, you were talking earlier about uh, people being religiously secular, but they still hold on to that culture that's part of the religion in which they were raised. Um, Could you expand that idea? Of course, um, we all come from a certain background. Um, usually, whatever community you live in, you you seem to um, hold on to a lot of your a lot of the values that you were taught. Most of these being religious values. And I grew up in Georgia, really southern Marietta, near near Atlanta, and I grew up as a Baptist. But I found when I, as I as I grew older, I I seemed to to trend away from the from the from the church itself and start asking my own questions. Culturally, religions have always connected people together, and it's allowed communities. At one point, it allowed communities to kind of meet up together in a social setting, and that's that was very important for people, and it's very important today. Um, what we'd like to advocate for, though, is you don't need to follow any strident, very rigid set of arbitrary like rules to kind of have that sense of community and that's what we like to advocate for. okay yeah so um just out of curiosity what are you guys studying at the university i'm studying environmental science uh, with a focus in environmental toxicology i'm studying economics okay so um i was wondering because you know uh, i was thinking oh if these guys they got to be based in the sciences but no it's kind of spread out all over the place which is great and um now do you think they're well, obviously, there are pressures for students to explore their identities when they come to college, and uh, you know, there's the religious route and the non-religious route. But how did you guys come to be secular? I was raised uh, in a Presbyterian church, and 
and maybe even the religious text specifically, it didn't line up with what made sense to me, and especially with what maybe the philosophical and scientific thought of our modern age. It just didn't line up with me. Usually when I'm ever asked this question, people expect kind of a a point, a point, a single point in time where you lost your faith, like quote unquote. But for me, it was a pretty gradual, very gradual kind of progress where I slowly left my my the kind of church environment and started asking a lot of questions and and really wanted wanted a substantial answer, answers that could be verified and like proven time in and time out, like peer reviewed answers. And I couldn't find that through a church setting. For students uh, who are interested in getting involved in the club, how can they do so? And how can they contact you? The easiest way would be going through the Secular Student Facebook website and just just clicking like. And uh, you, you can follow us pretty readily. And from that point forward, you can reach all of us, learn our meeting times. Well, thanks for coming over. And I really appreciate you guys uh, talking about your views. And um, thanks. If you have a Facebook and you currently attend NC State, you've probably seen them. The funny pictures with the funny captions detailing some aspect of life on campus. But how did these NCSU memes pop up overnight? Our contributor Grant Buckner is here to shed some light on this latest phenomenon. Socially awkward penguin, paranoid parrot, and hipster kitty. If you're able to visualize these images right now, then these memes have done their job. All of us have seen these repeated images on the internet before, but do you know where they came from? The term meme was actually coined back in 1967 by British evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins in his book The Selfish Gene as a way to talk about the principles revolving around the spread of cultural ideas. Just like genes, memes replicate, mutate, and sometimes go extinct. According to Wikipedia, a meme is an idea, behavior, or style that spreads from person to person within a culture and acts as a unit for carrying cultural ideas. Basically, memes are made up of anything and everything we find relevant to say to others. Like it or not, memes have become a popular way of spreading our ideas, especially among young adults and college-age students. You can waste hours on websites like Memestash or Reddit looking at these repetitive pictures and reading the captions that are usually relevant to your life. The idea that these memes unify us as a culture and spread ideas has been made obvious by the recent creation of NC State-themed memes which have popped up on Facebook and spread like wildfire. In early February, the page NCSU Memes began posting their Wolfpack-related memes on Facebook. Over 5,000 people later and suddenly you can't go to your Facebook newsfeed without seeing an NC State-themed meme. According to USA Today, these university-themed memes came from 21-year-old University of Waterloo dropout Saif Altamimi and his entrepreneurial company, Notewagon. After starting a meme page for Waterloo, copycats began popping up everywhere. Altamimi quickly capitalized on the situation by making another 65 university-themed meme pages with the help of his associates. Altamimi hopes to use this fad as an opportunity to advertise, eventually streamlining the pages he has created onto a site called campusmemes.com. NCSU communications professor Dr. Robert Tragg says that memes define themselves, and if what Dawkins said is right, the memes, like genes, increase their evolutionary dominance by self-replication. 
Memes are definitely dominating much of our internet culture right now, and we'll just have to wait and see if, like genes, they replicate, mutate, or die out. For Eye on the Triangle, I'm Grant Buckner, 88.1 WKNC. Next, DeAndre Jones has some thought about something he has some personal experience with. Anyone who's ever been in a long-distance relationship might be able to relate to this next piece. Whether you are young, old, or anywhere in between, people can generally agree that it is great to have someone to love, myself included. Of course, with love comes relationships, and with relationships comes commitment. Once again, all of these are expected. When a person enters into a relationship with a significant other, these things are all understood aspects. Unfortunately, the world is not nearly as considerate as we would like it to be. Circumstances happen, and many relationships are greatly changed by said circumstances. High school students go to college, people get offered jobs in different areas, the list goes on and on. All of these situations are the cause of a long-distance relationship, which is what my topic is today. First and foremost, long-distance relationships are not for everyone. If you are a person that needs to see your significant other frequently, and one of you has to move away, you still will have two options. First, fight through the pain of being by yourself for a while, or move on. Either choice is understandable. And an important thing to remember is that one shouldn't be ashamed to recognize that a long-distance relationship doesn't work for you. You shouldn't feel like a bad person, as it is not your fault. Explore your opportunities in the new area that you are in, or the same area without your significant other, which can be a surprisingly different environment. If you are a brave soul like myself and are actively trying to overcome the change from normal relationship to long-distance relationship, one of the most important things is trust. Without the security of being near your girlfriend or boyfriend, you cannot be sure of what they are doing. It's understandable to wonder and question some things. However, if you do not trust your significant other, every other aspect of the relationship will fall as well. Communication is also very important. Talking to your girl or guy really does help to alleviate the pain of going without. This, I can personally vouch for. The effects of long-distance relationships can be reflected in school performance and the health of a college student. Negative effects can range from loss of appetite, weight gain, upset stomach, headache, and depression. The positive outcomes, however, can mean a lifelong partner and friend. The distance takes away a lot of distraction and gives both parties the opportunity to focus on what really matters. Humans thrive on physical as well as mental stimulation. The transition from seeing that special someone every day to not seeing them at all is a large adjustment. However, everyone has their different ways of coping with it. You simply need to find yours, whether it be moving on without the person or talking to them every single day or texting them every single minute. Thank you, and for Eye on the Triangle, this has been DeAndre Jones. Many people today liken the current GOP primary race to something of a circus or a game show. Mark Herring believes they're in the same in everything but name. With the ruling of Citizens United in 2010, the nature of political campaigns will forever be prolonged and agonizing into sagas more dramatic than the actual presidency. I suggest we should just ditch the campaigning in general. It's way too long already, and I've already lost attention. What I'm asking for is some quick and dirty melodrama. Luckily, daytime television gives me my fix for the quick and trashy, but why can't C-SPAN? We were waiting for the Jerry Springer show to unfold after Lewinsky Gate, and though McCain isn't an illegitimate father, man, did that lie on behalf of the Bush campaign sway South Carolina in the 2000 primary. The thing is, we as Americans live for this stuff. A game show is the least the candidates could do for us. At this point... Things are getting ridiculous. Gingrich is talking about a base on the moon, and it's not even the real presidential showdown yet. What can we expect when there is actually a nominee? 
a base on Mars? The short and dirty is that Republicans need to stop chasing their tails. And it's about time for a game show showdown. A good 30-minute session of Family Feud would cover all of our bases instead of a year-long, drawn-out campaign. We don't care about policy. Less than a third of the United States actually knows what TARP is, and fewer than 28% of Americans can identify Justice John Roberts as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, according to pupils. What's this mean? Americans don't think about politics. We think about trivia. More than 500 different types of game shows have aired since the 1940s, and though many have risen and faded, the ones we love have lasted more than two terms in office. But the question becomes, why family feud over others? Jeopardy's too tough. It requires intellect. We'll leave that to their advisors. Who wants to be a millionaire would be pointless, as all the candidates are millionaires already. Wheel of Fortune, a show about finishing sentences, wouldn't work without their speechwriters. However, Family Feud naturally lends itself to getting to know presidential candidates and family strife. In Family Feud, the questions are based off public surveys. In other words, democracy. A 20-second time frame to answer would reflect how they would work under pressure. Responses would reveal how in tune they are with us. However, the most important aspect of Family Feud is the interaction of families. And by interaction, I'm talking about chaos. We're not electing just a president to the office, but rather a first family. We need to know what pointless and lackluster charities our first ladies will endorse, and if our first kids will be overachievers or potheads. Though we will never admit it, we are a shallow people. All we want to know is how messed up their family is compared to our own. With anything too perfect or too absurd, some red flags are going to be raised. It's time to settle this. Mitt Romney and his perfect Brigham Young educated family of five perfect boys and ever so cheerful wife versus Newt Gingrich's dysfunctional family involving three different marriages. The scene would unfold with a round of survey says, we're not talking about pupils or studies from the Brookings Institution, but rather questions referring to how to spell potato that actually stumped Vice President Dan Quayle or is strategery a real word and what is the definition of is? In other words, we're looking for some Rick Perry-esque oops moments. As great as it is to watch a Harvard grad struggle, what we really want to see is intra-family dispute. We want Newt's most current wife to be mistaken as a third daughter. We want his ex-wife's forced proximity to lead into catfighting. We want Romney to be wrong for once and to find a single flaw in his perfect Mormon family. With the GOP nominee family feud, we'll be able to identify the strong, defective, and unsavory of aspects of our top candidates, and we'll be able to settle this primary nonsense finally. As for the conclusion of this year's family feud, Newt's family will no doubt degenerate into bickering and spite, and Mitt's family will sappily cheer each other on. And that's where we'll see the true candidates shine, and it will be great television just based on contrast alone. Family feud accentuates family dysfunction, and for a presidential candidate, dysfunction may actually be an attribute. In the end, that's us. That's America. A chaotic, confused, bickering family that can only unite during times of crisis and celebration, or sometimes just in front of the constantly blaring television. From Eye on the Triangle, I am Mark Herring.
Besides Mardi Gras, let's see what other things we should be celebrating. Here's Dave with our Holidays of the Week. Hello, this is Dave. Welcome to Holidays of the Week. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Shrove Tuesday or Fat Tuesday, usually celebrated with lots and lots of pancakes. Tomorrow is Ash Wednesday, National Margarita Day, and World Thinking Day. It's also George Washington's birthday. Thursday is Curling is Cool Day. It is cool. It's an awesome winter sport. Friday is National Tortilla Chip Day, so grab a bag of chips and some salsa of your choice and chow down. Saturday is International Sword Swallowers Day. This seems to be open to both experts and beginners, although I don't know that I'm allowed to recommend that you try sword swallowing over the radio. Sunday is Carnival Day and for Pete's sake day. I don't even know how to approach that second one. Monday is Polar Bear Day and No Brainer Day. You should not attempt to celebrate both of these simultaneously. That should do it for our holidays this week. Thanks for listening, and remember to celebrate your way through the week. Raleigh has come to be known in recent years as one of the cultural centers of the Southeast. Here's Rebecca with Eye on the Arts. Hi, my name's Rebecca, and you're listening to Eye on the Arts, where I tell you what's going on in the arts community every week. If Miles Davis is credited with the birth of the cool, then a group based out of Durham is perfecting the art of the cool. The Art of Cool Project is a jazz and art advocacy project that brings people of all backgrounds together in appreciation of the soulful community of jazz. Last Thursday, February 16th, I went to see a local jazz showcase presented by the Art of Cool Project and jazz musician Al Strong at Kings Barcade in downtown Raleigh. The people who came to see artists Mavis Swan Poole, Jeremy Bean Clemen, Soul Understated, and DJ Special Guest were some of the most lively guests I've seen at the music venue in a while. Guests made way for a duo to take over the dance floor in response to the trumpet and saxophone on the stage. The Art of Cool Project presents monthly concerts every third Friday featuring a variety of music. Jazz, hip-hop, electronica, and soul are a few of the musical genres the group is helping promote. What's unique about this venture is the collaboration between musicians and artists to create a truly invigorating performance. The Art of Cool Project partners with visual artist Louise Franco and photographer Frank Myers to create artwork each month. The artists create posters, which reflect the diversity of the music represented in jazz itself. Each poster is a graphic balance of black and neon. The featured artists are outlined in black and set against bright blues, neon pinks, and safety yellow. After attending one of the shows, I can now see how appropriate the posters really are. Each poster matches the electric energy of the artists and guests in the room. The Art of Cool Project represents a group of people committed to a rich culture full of history that doesn't seem likely to fade away. If Miles Davis created the cool, then Raleigh and Durham are sustaining it. Thanks for listening to Eye on the Arts. My name's Rebecca. Here's what's going on around campus. Hello, it's me again. Welcome to this week's community calendar. A panel will be, a panel will be speaking about Couch Surfing 101 in Riddick Hall, room 301, tomorrow night from 7 to 9. 
professional art conservator Chris Allen will be talking about what happens when good people do bad things to paintings on Thursday from 6 to 7 in the Gregg Museum in Tally Student Center. Also on Thursday, the NC State Jazz Ensembles will be giving a free concert from 7 to 8 in Stewart Theater. On Friday, from 7 to 8.30, there will be a faculty recital featuring the piano music of John Cage. This will be held in Titmus Theater at Thompson Hall. Tickets can be purchased for that over the phone at 919-515-1100. The 7th Annual Polar Plunge and Run will take place at Lake Raleigh on Saturday. This event will benefit the North Carolina Special Olympics. You can check that out at ncstatepolarplunge.com. The first 5K Turtle Trot Run Walk will be hosted by the Delta Zeta Sorority on Sunday, 10 a.m. until noon, and will benefit charities that support the deaf and hearing impaired. Next Tuesday, from 4.30 to 6.30 in Park Shops 210, there will be a discussion on the constitutional amendment banning same-sex unions. And, of course, the Witherspoon Student Cinema will be screening The Muppets and Mulan this weekend. For more information on these events, check out the calendar page at ncsu.edu. That should wrap up this week's community calendar. Back to you. Now for the answer to last week's riddle. The answer was a flower called the marigold. The marigold is also called the tarragon in Texas, and it's used for perfume in South America. In England, the marigold is another name for dishwashing gloves. This week's riddle is a short one, but it's a toughie. It's been around for millions of years, but it's no more than a month old. What is it? If you know the answer, be sure to tell us on our Facebook page. And as always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on our Facebook page. You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. Also be sure, also be sure to check out our blog at WKNC.org. Well, that's all we have for now. We thank you for tuning in. Until next week. Good night.